You're listening to Church Unplugged, the podcast of Christ Community Chapel. In each episode, we look at questions and topics that are related to our faith in Jesus and to the way that it plays out in everyday lives. This episode is the second episode related to our Ten Commandments series, where we look at issues and topics that are related to the second five commandments, commandments six through ten, and how they apply to our lives as followers of Jesus. So welcome in to Church Unplugged. Welcome into Church Unplugged. I'm Jimmy Cozy, part of the leadership team here at CCC. I've got with me today Joe Coffey, our lead pastor, and Zach Wyrock and Todd Ionetta, both members of our leadership team. We are continuing our podcast in response to the Ten Commandments series. So uh, if you look back up in the feed, there's part one of this podcast where we answered some uh, questions that were left on the cutting room floor from Commandments 1 through 5. Today, we're going to do the same for Commandments 6 through 10, which are Uh, You shall not murder, you don't commit adultery, you don't steal, you don't lie, and then you don't covet. So we're going to answer some questions that are connected to these that may not have gotten answered in this sermon as we think practically about how do the Ten Commandments apply to our lives as followers of Jesus today. So the first one uh, we'll start with is uh, what are some more practical ways we can step into being holistically pro-life? So uh, Zach did the sermon on on murder and talked a lot about uh, life and valuing life. So how can we practically apply that as followers of Jesus? Zach, I want to say... Uh what a great sermon that was. I thought you did a, oh, a, an amazing job. You killed it. With, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was really good. Good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think uh, hopefully there's a challenge in there for all of us. You know, I, you know I, I, I think during the week working on that sermon, just coming out of the conviction, none of us are fully pro-life, right? And so I think the first step is just admitting that, right? Acknowledging that some lives matter a little more to us uh, than others. We all have blind spots, right? And I just think that the great thing about the gospel is that I don't have to run from that, right? Like I'm not, I'm not going to make it into heaven or not make it into heaven for being perfectly pro-life. So I can say, you know what? I don't care about all lives the way I should. And I don't have to be crushed by that. I can be sad of that, but I don't have to be crushed by it. Jesus died for that. He did. He cared for all lives. And that's the righteousness I've now received in him. And he's died for my lack of caring for all lives. So that's just a good starting point is to say, hey, I'm not fully pro-life and asking the Lord, could you show me the areas where you know, I've turned a blind eye? I think that's a good starting point. But then when you do that, I think it's worth saying, what are some ways we, we would anticipate the Lord pointing us? I, I think for me, I'll just start for me. I think a conviction I've had over the last year is the incarcerated. So people in prison are forgotten. I mean, you if you if you just Google search stories of abuse and scarcity in prison, it'll make you cry. Like there are some really awful stories out there, and uh, the reason why no one's talking about it is there's a there's a sense of like, well, they get what they deserve. You don't you know you don't want to be in prison. Don't don't do things, which is stripping them of their humanity. Right. Right. All of us are sinners. So uh, by that logic, none of us should expect good things. But second. There's no political win there, right? Felons aren't voting. <laughs> there's no there's no motivation for our political leaders to improve the plight. But that's where the church can step in, right, and say these people are made in the image of God. They matter. Let's push the envelope on them mattering. So for me, that's a good starting point. Well, I thought the most convicting part of your sermon for me was the whole sliding scale because I realize uh, I have a sliding scale for everybody. Mm-hmm. Even when you uh, and and this will sound terrible, and I'm. Sorry about this, but there'll be times when you'll read in the in the paper about uh, somebody dying, and if they're attractive, it seems more tragic 
you know, mm. if they were cute little kids or, you know, I, and I just think, how terrible is mm. that? But I think, uh, you know, when I, I read the, the, the book Just Mercy and then that movie has come out that what, Zach, what you said about the incarcerators is absolutely true, but it's true all over the place. And I got to uh, constantly work to bring, to, to move people that I've, that I've moved down the, the sliding scale back up to being made in the image of God. You know, C.S. Lewis does such a great job of saying that no one you meet is just a normal human being. They're all just, they're created in the image of God and they will be splendors for all of eternity. Or there will be horrors uh, if they end up going to hell. So, yeah, no, that's really good. I uh, for us, I think that this is the whole reason we started into the adoption process. Mm. You know, is because of this so concept. Good. And Zach, when you when you preached your sermon, it, it was a renewed energy for me uh, in this because we've been waiting for like you know nine months at this point, and it's starting to get you know, a little bit old, just sitting and waiting around. We yeah. want to do it, but th- it just reminded me again why we're doing it. We have three biological kids, and so part of a question I ask is like, how could I love someone like I love my three kids? Yeah. Uh, another, How could I love another kid that way? But um, I know when that sermon convicted me, like I can yeah. and I need to, and it's part of, it's part of the answer. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I want to add to that, that I, I have made passing mention of this in my sermon. I just want to reiterate. So Christ Community Chapel does have an adoption fund. If you're willing to take the steps to pursue adoption, you know, we would love to talk with you about uh, coming alongside you and supporting that. You know, what we want is families that are willing and able to adopt to to not have money be the reason that they don't do it. People give very generously to that. So just want to encourage you to give to that, to consider it maybe if money's been what, what's stopping you? I mean, that's the, I've never, I'm sure the other churches do that. I've never heard of that. And as a family that adopted, I mean, I'm just so incredibly grateful for that. So I think adoption, foster care, those are great applications. Yeah, and foster care is the big need right now. Yeah. Uh, we've even prayed about whether God's leading us to that just because, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's so many kids sitting in the system. There's kids sitting in uh, adoption agency offices right now waiting to be uh, fostered. Yeah. And I think, look, all these things are messy, right? I mean, Joe, taking on your sliding scale, that's that's messy. It requires you to acknowledge some things about yourself that are messy. Adoption, I can tell you firsthand, is is messy. Uh, you know, caring for the incarcerated, all these things will, but people are worth it, right? That's the thing. If the messiness yeah. and the money and the inconvenience and the self-reflection keep us from doing it, what we're saying is people matter, but not that much. And we don't mean that. I don't think we have a moment where we kind of say that, but that is what we're saying. And the most vulnerable people of our society, the most on the margins, they know that. They feel that, that society as a whole is saying to them, uh, you you just don't matter enough. And I just think, you know, we talk about wanting to see the Lord do amazing things, wanting to see revival, wanting to see renewal. I just think it's going to happen on the fringes. I really do. I think it's going to happen when the church starts to say, you know what? These people do matter. And just the massive way the incarcerated or kids in foster yeah. care could hear the gospel, see the gospel, taste it, receive it, because the only people who are saying you matter are the people of Jesus. And I just think want to encourage you, you don't have to seek out application in all these ways. No one has that much time or energy or inclination, but can you just pick one? 
Can you just pick one way you're going to be a little more pro-life and chase that as far as the Lord will take you? And I think if we all do that, one of the things I love about being at CCC is if if each one of us just takes that seriously, we'll change Northeast Ohio. I mean, it's just our, our scope. Find one way you can be a little more pro-life and push into that uh, this week. Commit to that. And I really think the Lord will change Northeast Ohio, if not the world, through that. All right, let's uh, pivot to the commandment not to covet. So uh, before we answer a question, can somebody just define what does it mean to covet? Uh, covet would be a grasping for. It'd be looking at somebody uh, who has something that you don't have and thinking if you only had that, then you'd be content. So I think that uh, it's going to be – it's an interesting thing to have that be the 10th command and the first command being uh, have no other gods before me. Uh, if you have that first commandment down and you have no other gods but God – then the result of that is that you will be content. Uh, but almost all of us look at somebody's life and we think, uh, man, if I had what they have, uh, whether it be a, a romance or a possession or an accomplishment, then that would make me content. And so that would be what the so what coveting is. How do we balance the command not to covet is it wrong to want nice things? Is it wrong to to want material things? How do we how do we live in that tension? Do we live in that tension? Yeah, I mean, I think our tendency is always to think of hard and fast black and white rules, right? right? To want to say, is it wrong? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it right? right? And to thus exempt ourselves or condemn ourselves based on our personality. I think it's better to ask questions like, why do I want this? Right? Why do I want this? So do I want this for status, right? Well, what is status for people of Jesus, right? Our status is in, in, is in him. Do I want this for identity? Do I want this out of a sense of need or out of sense of being less than? I think those kinds of questions are more difficult to ask. They take more time to wrestle through, um, but in the end are actually what the Lord is chasing after. So I think, you know, the Bible is very clear that that coveting is not good. It, it's not It's not what the Lord wants for us. But the Bible is also full of characters who had a lot of stuff, right? right. You know, especially when you read the patriarchs in the Old Testament. They were wealthy men. They had a lot of things. So having things is not an, alt, not an automatic uh, sinful thing. Uh, but instead, what the Bible teaches us to do is to ask, what's driving this? What, what's pushing me? Yeah, the only person that Jesus ever said, get rid of everything, was that rich young ruler. Mm, yeah. But uh, all his other... And he confronted a lot of wealthy people. Mm. For that guy... Mm-hmm. That was the way to save him. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've always thought it's funny that we don't know that guy's name. We just know rich young ruler. Right. And I heard a, a pastor once say that Jesus was telling him, you've got to let me be the rich ruler. You just got to be the young guy, right? Oh, wow. And, and, wow. and he wasn't willing to do that because that was his name. Right. Not, you know, I like to joke that if he gave you his business his, card, his it would say yeah. rich young yeah. ruler, right? right? He was right. going to have to. But then you read the story of Zacchaeus for example. Right. And Zacchaeus is like the bizarro rich young ruler. Right. And we don't know if, if Zacchaeus was much richer. You no, know? Right, right. Yeah. Right. But he's liquidating and yeah. giving away. But but what changed for Zacchaeus was what he needed, right? Zacchaeus's liquidation, I really think he's the positive rich young ruler. Zacchaeus realized if Jesus sees me and knows me and loves me, 
I don't need all this stuff. Right. So what he was saying is not it's wrong to be wealthy. What he was saying is the reason why I'm wealthy has been my desperate sense of need. That need has been met. Therefore, I can give freely. So I think the questions to ask are a little tougher, a little slower, a little messier. But if you ask them, they will serve you better long term than saying, hey, I've been in the market for a car. Is it bad to want a new car? That's an overly simplistic question that I'm not sure is worth asking. And we go back to identity, right? Uh, and if your identity is in what you wear uh, or what you drive or the house you live in, uh, then you're in trouble. And if yeah. your identity is in Jesus, then uh, then where you live, what you wear, what you drive uh, goes into a different category. And, right. by the, and by the way, if your identity is in what you wear and where you live and what you drive, I mean, just living in Hudson myself, like there are so many levels to that. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You will never, you'll never be happy. Someone will have a better house than you in this town. Someone right. will drive a better car than you. Someone will have a better spring break vacation. Like that, that, is, a, that is a no win game. So you got to stop thinking that God is out to restrict you and start thinking God is out to rescue you. You cannot win at that game. It'll destroy you. Right. You will chase your tail until the day you die. But God wants to pull you out of that. He wants you to reimagine what the rich life is, right? And, and by doing that, in the end, he's blessing you. He's not out to destroy you. He's out to bless you. And I think we got to realize that. Yeah, I think we can use this idea of status, uh, whether you're really rich or you're, you're not very rich as Christians, you know, we can say for somebody, uh, obviously, for somebody who's really rich, they can use their status money-wise, say I'm better than you because I have more money. But even uh, people who are Christians who have not had the material things that they want might look at others who do and say, uh, I'm better than them because I've given up these things right. as a follower. Yeah, I'm like glad this. you say that because I, I want to make this point. When I was young in my faith, you know, early 20s, I had this anti-wealth bent. You know, it was like, if you had money, it's because... And you know what changed for me? Two things. Uh, I planted a church which I couldn't have done without wealthy believers who were saying, hey, we think what you're doing is great. What do you need? What can we... And I realized in God's economy, like, yeah, we needed boots on the ground people, but we also needed people who were saying, you can have your boots on the ground because I bought those boots. Right. And, you know? mm -hmm. and then I think second, I met people who were wealthy, who lived open-handedly. I, I mean, I just, I met... When you meet people like that, and by the way, I've met a lot of those at CCC. Like we, God in, in God's grace, we have a lot of people who fit that category. And I want you to hear me say that if you are a person who's doing well in life, you shouldn't feel condemnation by this. You, there are a lot of ways to be successful without coveting. Success does not automatically mean right. you broke the rules. And if you live open-handedly, you, you really can have such an incredible contribution to, to the kingdom. And so if you've been doing that, we have a lot of people who are probably listening to this who have been and are doing that. Keep going. Keep going. I mean, you are a tremendous blessing to the church and the kingdom. All right, let's pivot to the commitment to not bear false witness or to not lie. Uh, so the question that we might have is, are all lies sinful? So there are scenarios where we could, could conceivably think, okay, uh, if a lie is for the greater good, is that still wrong? Is that lie still sinful? How do we process through yeah, that. so an example would be in Scripture when uh, the Hebrew midwives lie to Pharaoh at the right. beginning of the book of Exodus and say that all, you know all the babies are female or that they killed the male babies when they really didn't. Uh, were, were they right or were they were they wrong? Yeah, they were praised in in Scripture. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so I mean, it's a really honestly, it's a pretty heated debate uh, theologically because uh, 
you know, some people will say, hey, they were praised. That means it's it's okay. Some people will say, well, they were praised, but they were praised for the action of like saving, not right. for the methodology of saving. You know, one of the things I say in the sermon on false witness or lying is that we often lie, most often lie out of two things. We, we lie first because we don't think that we can be fully known and loved. So we lie out of insecurity or we lie uh, out of a sense of needing to take care of ourselves. So I have to cut this corner because I, I have to look out for myself. And if I tell the truth, it'll cost me. And then who's going to look out for me? Uh, I think the tricky thing becomes when you deal with a scenario where I'm not driven by one of those things, right? Where I'm, you know, the, the quintessential ethics class question of Nazis knock on your door and you've right. got uh, Jewish people hiding in your house. And he says, do, are there any Jews here? Do you say yes? Or do you know, do you say no? So to frame it up like that, that is the nature of the question in that lie. Am I trying to provide for myself? Am I trying to look out for myself? Am I being insecure? No. So then what does that mean? So I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? Todd, what do you think? Yeah, about that? In that case, it seems like uh, lying could be a very selfless thing to do. So like if you're protecting someone from getting killed and it takes a lie, then is it, if you, is your if your motive is the right is that then it seems selfless. Yeah, what if you use the just war theory where you are stopping a greater wrong by right. doing that? Yeah, it's, that's that's a tough one because yeah, you can. You, you know, I had a DEA agent one time talk yeah, to me and just say, I lie all the time. I have to for my job. Yeah. Is that wrong? And I'm going, <laughs> not with the people you work with. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you want to Google these things, there are uh, two schools of thought. And there are forms of it called one's called graded absolutism and the other one's called moral absolutism. The former uh, graded absolutism is believing that there are levels to truth. So, for example, saying uh, life matters more than integrity. So, if you have to lie to save a life, you do it, and you're you're doing this like uh, economic value system. And they would say that the Exodus account is exactly that. It's graded absolutism. Moral absolutism would say, uh, actually, it is it is never okay to break an absolute law that God has given us and that they only seem to conflict. They don't really conflict, right? So if the Hebrew midwives had told Pharaoh, yeah, they're boys, but we're not going to kill them. God would have provided for them only in a different way. And I know you're going to say, hmm. which do you think, Zach? And I just think you're going to have to Google it and read about it. It's a really, <laughs> it's a really tricky question. But I think this is an example of like, you can love Jesus and believe the Bible is true and land in different places. And I, what, if, what if your wife says, do I look good in this? Then, Well, my wife always looks good. So I would just <laughs> there you say go. yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's pivot to uh, the last question that we have. So uh, Todd will, has preached a sermon on adultery and uh, one of the things that, uh, well, I remember from Zach's sermon, I believe on murder, is he told a story about a guy, he actually stole all of Todd's thunder in his sermon on murder, but he told a story about a guy that he met with at his previous church uh, who basically said, the quote that he said was, uh, pornography is adultery for cowards. Right. And uh, I think, it, you know, we've done a whole podcast on pornography. You can look up in the feed and find it. Uh, but pornography is one of the most per pervasive issues within the church, um, for both for men and women, but it's a particularly big problem for men. Uh, so the question is, what are some practical steps that people can take to free themselves up from that sort of snare, that struggle? How do we address that issue from a practical standpoint? Uh, I would just, first of all, say uh, it is a problem for women too. And, and yeah. the reason I say, I just emphasize that is because I, I've talked to different women who, when it is an issue, they, uh, they don't feel like, they feel like it's so weird that they struggle with it because mm -hmm. nobody ever call, says that it's a woman's mm -hmm. issue. So just to throw mm -hmm. that yep. out there. 
Um, what was the question? What, what are practical steps yeah. we can take to free ourselves? Yeah, I think it, again, uh, comes back to um, God's design uh, for sexuality. And I think it's it's not... So it's more about uh, understanding the heart of what God's called you to uh, for in sexual intimacy and not as much about, you know, how to fight against what pornography. Filtering software I should get. And- right. I think there's practical things that we could talk about, but I think that the truth is that the more you taste how good God is and everything that he's created is for your good and is for you to point to, to understand Christ more, then you will begin to develop just kind of this distaste for everything that's not of him. Yeah, uh, like the starting point is to believe that God is for you and not against you. Exactly. He's not telling you no as much as he's telling you yes to better things. I think that's true. I think uh, that's where you start for sure. I and think two it, pieces. Great, and you have to realize too that pornography is just a symptom. It's not that's a, a, right. right. I think two right. two practical pieces of advice here. One is figure out what triggers you to look at right. pornography. I think there's a faulty thinking out there, and I probably had this at one point as a as a young pastor, that lust is always what drives you to pornography. And I don't think that's true. I think for a lot of guys uh, or, or women, it's stress management, right? It, it, there are a lot of reasons, a lot of studies out there you can read about that drive you to say stress, anxiety, insecurity, all these things drive us to pornography. So ask yourself the question, when I'm most tempted to look at pornography, what's happening? Where am I? What time of day is it, right? So I think if you can identify some of those things, you you can begin to train yourself to have some different pathways. If your answer to stress right now is to look at pornography, like there is even, studies will say, there's even a chemical like dependency in your brain in that way. So you've got to retrain. You're not just going to snap your fingers and make that go away. So you've got to retrain that. And the way you do that is to say, when I'm stressed, I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to retrain myself in that way. So that's that's, that's number one. And then number two, whenever someone comes to my office and asks hey, can you help me uh, deal with pornography? I always ask them, if you were going to look at pornography right now, how would you do it? And I think if it takes you only a couple seconds to answer that question, you're not really ready to take it on. You are going to have to do some work to remove the quick and easy pathways to it. If it takes you three seconds to go, I would just do this, right? then you are hiding that pathway in your heart, right? right? You're holding on to it so that you know at any time you can go look for it. What you want to try to do is work through what drives me to pornography. How do I deal with that? How do I replace that? How do I preach the gospel to that, to Paul's point? How do, I mean, to uh, Todd's point, how do I replace that pathway with something else? But then also, like, how do I eradicate those pathways so that if someone asks me, if you're going to look at pornography, how would you do it? And, I, and it takes me 10 seconds, 15 seconds, because I've eliminated all the easy access points. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, and we think about the Ten Commandments series in a big picture sense. I think uh, I'm a very black and white thinker, and so I like to be able to say, hey, this is the answer, this isn't the answer. Uh, and I think a lot of times when we approach passages of Scripture, we approach them looking for the same thing, and I think the Ten Commandments are one of those, where we can say, uh, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't stolen anything, I haven't lied, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm doing well, right? And I think what we've seen throughout this series is that uh, rote obedience to commandments is not what God is looking for. Uh, he's looking for something much deeper than that, a transformation and dependence upon him that comes. And the Ten Commandments are a part of that, but there's always something deeper in terms of valuing him. I think that's why he puts the first commandment as having no other gods before him, is that uh, that we would value him above all else, and in so doing, we would obey the Ten Commandments. And I think that's why I, I have loved this series 
is because you go back to why we did the series in the first place, uh, which is the conversation that Jesus had in Matthew 22, where somebody says, what's the greatest commandment? And instead of giving an easy answer, like giving one of the Ten Commandments, Jesus says, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we all know that love is pretty comprehensive in its, uh, in its scope. And so God is after our hearts, uh, both for himself and for each other. And that's what the Ten Commandments were about. And that's what we try to do through that series. You've been listening to Church Unplugged, the podcast of Christ Community Chapel. In each episode, we're going to look at topics and questions that are related to our faith in Jesus and to the way that it plays out in everyday life. We want your feedback. We want your suggestions. If you've got ideas or questions that you'd like to hear answered on the show, you can email us at churchunplugged at ccchapel.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.